Grab a Bible. Uh, if you brought one, you're going to need it. Uh, John chapter 12 is um, where we're, uh, we're going to be this morning. Um, we are finishing the chapter. We're finishing John 12, and then my family and I are out of here for three weeks. And so you've got some great uh, preachers coming up for the next three weeks uh, as we go visit family. And so they're just going to continue in John chapter 13 and 14, and so it's going to be great. But um, wrapping up chapter 12, this is the official end of Jesus' public ministry. And so the rest of John, if you wanted to split John kind of into two parts, we're, we're closing out the first part. This has all been Jesus' public ministry, and then from chapter 13 and on, it's Jesus' private conversations with his disciples, and then his trial and crucifixion and resurrection. And so we're kind of moving into part two of this book. So let me remind you, John has been building for 12 chapters, right? He's making the case that Jesus is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the one that came to save the world. And how John has done this is he's laid out seven signs that Jesus did. Now, we know from the other Gospels that Jesus performed many more signs than that, but, but John lays out seven specific signs that Jesus did to confirm his identity, right? He changed water to wine. He healed the official son. He healed the cripple, right, by the pool of Beth, uh, Bethesda. He uh, fed 5,000 people. He walked on water. He healed the blind man, and he raised Lazarus from the dead. All of those miracles were meant to show the Israelites to show the Jews that Jesus is the Messiah. He is God's son. And so now at this last section of John 12, it's, it's like we're seeing, okay, well, what is the result of that? Right? Twelve chapters, you know, three and a half years of ministry of Jesus doing these signs to prove that he's the Messiah. What was the end result? So our passage today, basically we're going to see this. Five things that Jesus came to do. And then three ways that people respond. So five things. This is what Jesus came to do. And then how did the people actually respond? So really simply, what I want to do is just read um, John 12, 27 through 50 uh, in one go. And then we'll just kind of work through it and pull out some, some points. So if you have a Bible, you can follow along. This is what it says. This is Jesus speaking. Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I have come to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it said that it had thundered. Others said an angel has spoken to him. Jesus answered, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. Now is the judgment of this world now will the ruler of this world be cast out, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show by what kind of death he was going to die. So the crowd answered him, we have heard from the law that the Christ remains forever. How can you say that the Son of Man must be lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed and hid himself from them. 
Though he had done so many signs before them, they still did not believe in him. So that the words spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Therefore, they could not believe. For again, Isaiah said, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn and I would heal them. Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. And Jesus cried out and said, whoever believes in me believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him. For I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me does not receive my words, has a judge. The word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me has himself given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak and I, now, and I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. The reading of God's word. And thus ends uh, the public ministry of Jesus. He's not going to speak to the crowds anymore. He's now going to go and, and spend this intimate time with his 12 disciples and then go and be crucified. So it's interesting. Um, growing up, I collected... Uh, baseball cards, because many of you know I love baseball and I played baseball, and I remember when my parents bought me kind of this big set of baseball cards, and if you know any kind of sports cards, usually there's a picture on the front of whoever the player is, and on the back it's stats, right? It's, you know, oh, so-and-so, they hit 40 RBIs this year, they did this and that, and all these kind of stats, and basically it's a summary of this is this person's career, this is what they've done so far. In, in, in some small way, this is kind of our passage today. Jesus, in his words, he's summing up everything that he came to do, right? And so it's such a fitting conclusion to the end of his ministry. As he's uh, talking to the crowds, he's basically summing up, this is why I came. And then, like I said, we're going to see how did people respond to him. So if you take notes, five things that Jesus came to do. Number one. Jesus came to glorify the Father. And so if you just start in verse 27, Jesus begins by saying, my soul is troubled. And that, that word in the original language, it means that his soul was stirred up. It was unsettled. It's actually um, a very strong verb, and it gives the, the sense of someone who... Uh, has anxiety or they're agitated, it's revulsion, it's horror at the thought of something. His soul is stirred up. And so here we have a really clear display of the humanity of Jesus. His soul is troubled, he's agitated, he's unsettled. And if you remember, it's similar to the other Gospels where Jesus is praying in the garden, right, of, Geth of Gethsemane, and he is troubled and he's sweating blood at the thought of what he's, he's going to go through. So I think he's troubled because he knows what's, what's coming. And so this is what he says. What, what shall I say? 
right? Here's a rhetorical question. Jesus says, what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. Basically, what am I going to say? God, Father, can you just get me out of this jam? I, I, I really don't want to do this. Can you save me from that? So he's asking a rhetorical question, and then he answers it. It's like he's saying, no, of course not, but for this purpose, I've come to this hour, right? So interesting, it, it's Jesus, even though his soul is troubled, he's agitated, he's unsettled about what he's going to go through, and he asks the hypothetical question, what, what am I going to say? God, I don't want to do this anymore. He says, no, this is why I've come, Father, glorify your name. So Jesus thought, even in the midst of this internal struggle, is that his Father would be glorified. That's why he came, right? And this is where it's interesting. Verse 28, uh, uh, the, the Father answers him. Like a voice from heaven says, I have glorified it and I will glorify it. Now, if you have read all the Gospels, there's three times where God the Father um, audibly speaks, right? The baptism of Jesus um, his transfiguration, and then here in this, in this instance. But, but God confirms, right? He says, I uh, have glorified it, and I will glorify it. What does he mean? God is saying, um, I've glorified my name through your ministry, Jesus, through your life, through all your miracles, through your teaching, and I will glorify it through what's coming, through your death and resurrection. So one of the reasons that Jesus came was to glorify the Father. He he perfectly obeyed everything God the Father asked him to do. He, he submitted himself and he obeyed and he glorified the Father in everything. Even in verse 49 and 50 of our text, Jesus says, I don't speak of my own authority. Right? Everything I say, I say as the Father told me. And we've seen this all along in John. Right? All of his ministry. Jesus has multiple times said this. I only do what the Father tells me to do. I'm here to glorify him. And so at this end of his public ministry, again, Jesus reminds us, one of the reasons I came was to glorify the Father. Secondly, Jesus came to judge the world. Um, verse 31, Jesus says, now is the judgment of this world. Now, here's what's interesting. If you have remembered what we've looked at John, in John, sometimes this goes back and forth. Right? Sometimes Jesus says, no, I didn't come to judge the world. And then other times he says, well, now it's time for judgment. And so you go, well, well which is it? It seems like it kind of goes back and forth, even in our own passage. Right? Later on, uh, uh, Jesus says in verse 47, if you, don't, if you hear my words and you don't keep them, I don't judge you. Well, you go, well, wait a second, Jesus. You just said now, now it's time for judgment. So the cross, the crucifixion of Jesus was a judgment on the world. The world thought, right, the religious leaders, the world thought that they were passing judgment on Jesus, but in reality, it was the opposite. The cross was passing judgment on them. Jesus coming, his, just him coming necessarily causes judgment, right, for those who reject him. So even earlier, Jesus says, I didn't come to judge the world, but people who don't believe in me, they've just brought judgment upon themselves. The person of Jesus necessarily brings judgment. You have to decide, who is Jesus? Is he who he says he is, or am I going to reject him? And if you reject him, then you've been judged. The words that Jesus spoke 
uh, will judge people on the last day. And so what Jesus does is he comes and he unconditionally declares the love of God. He declares salvation for mankind. And people rejected it and they brought judgment upon themselves. That's why Jesus says, okay, now it's time for the judgment of the world. It's time for me to die. And that's going to necessarily bring judgment on people who crucify me. So he came to glorify the Father. He came to judge the world. Thirdly, Jesus came to cast out Satan. And he says that in the second half of verse 31. He says, now will the ruler of this world be cast out. And so the ruler of this world, that's, that's a, a, a title for Satan. Jesus came to cast out Satan, to deliver a, a definitive death blow to Satan against evil and uh, evil powers. Satan's um, power over people through sin and death was defeated. And now you and I, because Jesus came, we can be delivered from spiritual darkness, delivered from the kingdom of Satan and, and slavery to sin. This is what Jesus came to do. So on one hand, Jesus did this all throughout his ministry, right? And his temptation, he resisted Satan. That was a victory over Satan. As Jesus goes and casts out demons and frees people from uh, spiritual oppression. He's, he's defeating Satan, but ultimately it's when Jesus was crucified that Satan was defeated. Uh, we, get, we get a few uh, examples of this. Colossians 2.15, speaking of Jesus, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. In, in Colossians, Paul's talking about what happened on the cross. Your record of debt was nailed to the cross. Jesus paid for your sins. And then he says, and the rulers and authorities, so spiritual rulers, authorities, Satan, the demonic world, he disarmed all of them and actually put shame on them by triumphing over them. Um, Hebrews 2, 14, it says, since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death, he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Jesus came to destroy the power of death and Satan. Fourthly, Jesus came to offer salvation. And we see this in a bunch of different places in our text. Verse 32, Jesus says, when I'm lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. Verse 36, Jesus says, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. Verse 46, uh, it says that Jesus came into the world as light. Whoever believes in me won't remain in darkness. In verse 50, he says, the commandment that I was given is eternal life. So all throughout these things, we're seeing Jesus came, right, to offer salvation to people. Through the cross, Jesus says, when I'm lifted up, then I will draw all people to myself. Now, we got to be really clear here because this doesn't mean universalism that, that everyone is going to be saved, right? It, what, what the wording means literally is I'm going to draw all types of people to myself, Jews and Gentiles, not just, not just Jewish people. I'm going to draw all types of people to myself. So think about what we've seen in John. All along, Jesus has offered salvation over and over and over and over again through different means. He says, I'm the bread of life, right? Believe in me, you'll never hunger. 
I'm the, the, I'm the living water. Believe in me, you'll never thirst again. I'm the light of the world. I'm the good shepherd. He's been beckoning people for 12 chapters. Come to me. I came to bring you salvation. But ultimately, it's the lifting up of Jesus, and we're told that he's talking about how he's going to die. It's by them nailing him to a cross and lifting him up. His crucifixion, it's like a beacon that is going to draw all types of people to himself. That's why he came, to offer and purchase our salvation. And then lastly, number five, Jesus came to reveal the Father to us. And he says that in verse 44 and 45, Jesus says, whoever believes in me believes in the one who sent me, believes in the Father. Whoever sees me, Jesus says, sees him who sent me. Right, so Jesus came to perfectly reveal God, the Father, to us. Even in John 1, 18, if you go all the way back, Jesus, uh, or, or it says, no one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, that's Jesus, he has made him known. So John says, no one's ever seen God, but Jesus came and he's made God known to us. Jesus perfectly revealed the Father to the world. Even in two chapters in John 14, um, one of Jesus' disciples, Thomas, is going to say to Jesus, Jesus, show us the Father, right? And Jesus will say to him, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father, right? So Jesus perfectly reveals God the Father to us. So it's like this, this last final passage of, of Jesus' public ministry, it's like he's He's summarizing everything that he came to do, right? He says, I came to glorify the Father. I came to judge the world. I came to cast out Satan. I came to offer salvation, and I came to reveal the Father to the world. These are the things that Jesus came to do. But the question is then, how did people respond to all of that? And, and then even think of, for us today, how do you and I respond to all of that? Because here's the thing, with Jesus, we have to respond. Um, the person of Jesus demands a response because of the things that he said about himself. You and I, we just can't, we can't be ambivalent about it. We can't be, you know, well, I don't like him or I, I don't hate him. I'm just kind of, meh. No, the person of Jesus, we have, to, we have to respond. We have to decide what we think about him. So in our passage specifically, we see two types of responses, both that are lacking, and then there's one other response that we've seen all throughout the book that is the correct response. So let's look specifically at the two types of responses in our passage. The first is that people responded in unbelief. And this is not new, we've seen it all along, right? Almost in every chapter, it feels like the crowds respond in unbelief. But the vast majority of people were told in verse 37... That though he had done so many signs, they still did not believe in him. The vast majority of people rejected Jesus. Even just work through, like verse 29, right? A voice booms from heaven. Like God the Father speaks from heaven. I have glorified it and I will glorify it again. And we're told that the crowd stood there and the majority of them said, well, it's thundering out. Right? Like, let's, let's, 
a, uh, let's give a, a physical reason for this spiritual phenomenon that just happened. The voice of God thundered from heaven. Well, is it going to rain? It seems thundery out. And some, like to be fair, some said, well, maybe an angel spoke to him. But you see people responding, right, in natural ways going, well, why is it thundering now? Um, go a little bit further. Jesus talks about his crucifixion, right? He says, I'm going to be lifted up. And how does the, gra- the crowd respond? In confusion, they go, well, Jesus, the Messiah remains forever, right? How can you say that the Son of Man is lifted up? Who is this Son of Man? May, may I remind you, last week when we looked at it, what were these same crowds doing? Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King. And now they're going, Jesus, what are you talking about? The Messiah lives forever. How can you say that you're dying? Who is the Son of Man? And listen, they're not wrong. If you read the Psalms and Isaiah and 2 Samuel, it all talks about the Messiah's rule and reign lasting forever. Jesus' kingdom never ends. And yet they would think, well, if, okay, if his kingdom never ends, how can he say that he's going to die? That makes no sense. Who is this Son of Man? Basically what they're saying is, who are you, Jesus? How can you claim to be the Christ, the Messiah, if you admit that you're going to be crucified? Like it doesn't add up, Jesus. And so Jesus knows that the crowds aren't believing in him. Their judgment is clouded. And that's why he says, the light is only here for a while. Don't let the darkness overtake you. Right? There's, a, there's a warning about unbelief, right? In verse 35 to 36, he says, walk while you still have the light. While I'm still here physically with you, don't let the darkness overtake you. If you let it overtake you, then you don't know where you're going, right? Don't give in to the unbelief. And then in verses 36 to 40, we're given this curious little section on their unbelief. We're told that Jesus hides himself. He departs, um, and he hides himself from these crowds. And then, like I mentioned, in verse 37, it says, though he had done all of these signs, so many signs, they still did not believe in him. Like, think about what we've studied and what the crowds witnessed. A man who couldn't walk, suddenly being able to walk, Like thousands upon thousands of 5,000 men, so probably close to 15,000 people fed with one basket of lunch. A man raised from the dead who had been dead for four days. And like on and on and on. All of these signs, and it says still they wouldn't believe in him. And then two prophecies in in Isaiah are mentioned, which are just fascinating, right? So verse 38, it says that they they wouldn't believe in him so that the word spoken by Isaiah would be fulfilled. And so the first one, it says, Lord, who has believed what he heard from us and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Um, This is a prophecy from Isaiah 53. And so the the answers to those uh, rhetorical questions, right? Whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? To all of them. Jesus has revealed himself to all of them. And who has believed what he heard? Nobody. It's actually, it's it's heartbreaking, right? Jesus comes and the arm of the Lord, the strength of God, who God is, has been revealed to all of them. And who believes? No one. 
by and large, the entire nation of Israel rejected Jesus. They refused his offer of salvation. And we need to know this is not new. Like, if you've read the Old Testament, this is just par for the course. God's people over and over and over reject him over and over and over. And, and they, so they continued to do the same thing with Jesus. It's a fascinating study. If you read the Old Testament and you go from the Exodus onwards, how quickly the people of God forget about God. I'm talking like they, he, he just saved us from, from Egypt. Man, I wish I was back in Egypt. It's like, are you kidding? <laughs> right? And ah, God is miraculously raining down food from heaven. Yeah, but I don't like the taste of it. Right? God's people over and over and over. Moses has been gone for a while. Let's build some idols to worship instead. So it's not like this is new. It's not a surprise, right, that God himself comes, walks among his own people, and they go, ah, let's kill him. Right? He reveals himself to them, and no one believes in him. But here's where it gets interesting. Verse 39. It says, therefore, they could not believe. And we go, that's interesting. God came and revealed himself. They wouldn't believe, so therefore, they couldn't believe. Right? And and so, verse 40, he has blinded their eyes, hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. So we need to unpack this a little bit. This comes from Isaiah chapter 6. This is another uh, prophecy from Isaiah. But it's so fascinating. John, John tells us the crowd saw all the signs. They wouldn't believe. They refused to believe in Jesus. But not only that, because they wouldn't believe, therefore they couldn't believe because um, God actually hardened their hearts. So yet again, we see, right, we've seen it so many times in John, we see the sovereignty of God operating at the same time as human responsibility, right? Did did God harden their hearts so they couldn't believe? Yes. Did they refuse to believe in Jesus? Yes. Both were operating at the same time. The people of Israel should have believed, but they didn't. And so they're held responsible for that, and yet, because they wouldn't believe, God hardened their hearts so that they couldn't believe. So theologically, this is called judicial hardening, Um, and I'm going to try and unpack this for us to just help us make sense, but um, I'm a parent, so when we had um, just one child, Lucy, our daughter, um, and if you're a parent, you'll maybe resonate with this, or maybe I'm just a terrible parent, <laughs> but she, um, we had a Rubbermaid container, right? Yeah, uh, and so as uh, probably a one-year-old, a two-year-old, she wanted to keep crawling in it, and then kind of lean right in the Rubbermaid and rock it back and forth, and then like try and get out of it, and we told her multiple times, time and time and time again, get out of the Rubbermaid. You're going to hurt yourself. Stop doing that. And then it was just, she's, I'm not going to listen to you, right? I'm just going <laughs> to, she hardened her heart against us. And I'm not going to listen to you because I want to do that. And so finally, my wife and I were like, okay, let's just see what happens. And some of you who are like, you're a terrible, no, you've done it too. Um, and so what happened, right? Inevitably, she's rocking and then she falls and she starts crying. And it was kind of like, like we tried to tell you 
right? We told you over and over, stop doing that. You're going to get hurt. And then finally, it was like we just took our hands off and went, okay, we tried. Now, it's not a perfect example, but in a small way, that is what the, the theology of judicial hardening is like. This is what it means. Human beings who continue to harden their hearts over and over and over and over against God, against the truth, refuse to believe, refuse to listen, at some point, God finally takes his hands off and goes, fine. I'm going to just give you over to what you want then. God gets to a point where people reject him over and over and over and over and over again, where he goes, fine, I'm actually going to make it so that you can't believe. So God's people, they constantly reject him, constantly reject his revelation, constantly reject his prophets. And so judicial hardening is when God punishes them by blinding their eyes and deadening their hearts. Now, I need to remind you, if this seems mean, I know that the gut reaction from a human perspective is to go, well, he should just be infinitely patient with me. I should just be able to harden my heart as long as I want, right? It seems so mean. Let me remind you, this is not mean manipulation by God. This is holy judgment on guilty people. And they're condemned to do and to be what they want to do and be. They willingly chose that. And so God goes, fine. Let me give you some examples. Deuteronomy 29, Moses says this, You have seen all that the Lord did before your eyes in the land of Egypt to Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land, the great trials that your eyes saw, the signs and those great wonders, right? And what did the people of Israel do? Reject God over and over and over and over again. He says, but to this day, the Lord has not given you a heart to understand or eyes to see or ears to hear. Um, if you read Romans 1, and we won't read the whole thing, but Romans 1 tells us that the people of, uh, or, or people, humanity, even though they knew the truth about God, they, they simply chose to worship other things. And three times in Romans 1, there's this little phrase that says, God gave them up, right? People said, you know what? I know the truth about God. I just don't want to worship God. I want to worship these things. And it says, God gave them over to that, said, fine, I'm going to take my hands off. And if, if that's really what you want, then I'll give you that. And then it says that people then went into more and more debauchery and women were in, in relationships with women and men with men and it was unnatural and it was debauchery and wickedness. And it says God gave them over. Does it sound anything like our culture? God gave them over. And then at the very end, it says people invented ways to do evil. Like, hello, that's where we live now. How can I do more evil? And it says God gave them over. It's like people over and over and over again. I hate God. I'm going to reject him. And then finally God goes, I'm just not going to convict you anymore then. Second Thessalonians 2, it says people refused to love the truth and they loved wickedness. And it says, therefore, because of that, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. It's heartbreaking to think like this, that people in their rebellion would hate God so much and reject Him so many times that God finally says, okay, have it your way. I'm actually going to remove 
the, the convicting work of the Holy Spirit, he's not going to convict you anymore. Your heart's going to be hardened because you just don't want to believe in me. Um, I actually think that this is what the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is. Many of you who grew up in church, you know in Matthew where Jesus talks about, you know, the unforgivable sin. And I grew up thinking that, okay, be careful that you don't accidentally blaspheme the Holy Spirit. Listen, if you're a follower of Jesus, you can't accidentally blaspheme the Holy Spirit. The unforgivable sin is a life lived of rejecting the Holy Spirit's convicting work over and over and over again, where finally God says, okay, enough. That's why it's unforgivable. So this is how the vast majority of the crowds responded to Jesus. We just, we don't want to believe in him. Now for us today, uh, I don't know where everyone's at here, but you, you can still choose to respond to Jesus like this. You can respond in unbelief. You can be confronted, right, with all of the evidence of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus and all of the overwhelming evidence that he is who he says he is. And you can still choose not to believe. You can still choose evil and sin. And God will let you do that. But the warning is continue in that and God might actually remove his hand and make it so that you're unable to believe. This is why over and over in Scripture, the warning comes up. Today, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your heart. So this is not meant to be like a a scare tactic. Say the prayer or else you might. No, not at all. But Scripture is really clear. If if you want to continue to reject God, that's fine. You have the choice to do that. But you might get to a point where God stops convicting you because you've chosen to just live in rebellion against him. So today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Now, there's another way to respond to Jesus, believe it or not, in this passage. Um, We're told that the vast majority of the crowds responded to Jesus in unbelief. They just said, "We, we will not believe in you. And then we're told, because they would not believe in him, they could not believe in him. But you can also respond like in verse 42, it says, nevertheless, many even of the authorities believed in him, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue, for they loved the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. I would call this nominal belief. And what I mean by that is a belief in name only. Right, you look at verse 42 and it says, yeah, some of the authorities believed in him, but they were so afraid of the Pharisees that they would dare not confess it because they cared more about glory for people than the glory that comes from God. So nominal belief would be someone who's like, yeah, sure, sure, I believe in God. But it's not a belief that actually leads to significant Life change. It's a belief that's, well, I'm not going to go tell people about Jesus because I'm afraid what people, it, it costs too much to be like a radical follower of Jesus. 
And the word there for loved, they loved glory that comes from man, it, it actually means they preferred. They preferred human approval rather than God's approval, right? We believe in Jesus. Man, he's doing amazing things, but I actually prefer getting feedback and approval and admiration from other people rather than God. So were they actually believers? There's actually no genuine belief without public confession, Now, some scholars that I read said, no, 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 look, some of the leaders believed in him, but I'm actually convinced that this is not real belief. It's like following Jesus was just, well, it's just too risky for us. So this is nominal Christianity, nominal belief, and I think that even today, our our pews are filled with nominal Christians, where it's kind of like, yeah, I believe in a God. I try and, you know, I pray for my meals and I go to church. That's what being a Christian means, right? That's all that's required of me. And it's this idea of being Christian in name only. So it's fascinating. Even if you look at the, um, the history of Canada, when Canada began to do their census every uh, four years or whatever it was, the very first census that Canada did, when, back when they used to even ask what your religion was, I don't think they asked that anymore because our world just doesn't care about that. But in the very first census, it, uh, 99% of Canadians checked the box Christian. And this is why so many people go, see, Canada was a Christian nation. But it was Christian in name only, right? And, and a lot of times when, when they would talk with people, like, so why, why are you calling yourself a Christian? Well, my aunt's Catholic, I think. So it's like a family thing, right? I go, to, I go to Easter and Christmas Eve services, so sure, I guess I'm a Christian. And so lots of people, right, respond to Jesus like this. It's not flat-out unbelief, I am rejecting Jesus, but in reality, you're still rejecting Jesus. It's kind of the, sh- the shrugging of the shoulders and going, yeah, sure, mark me down as Christian, whatever. And this is why many people have this view of God, which scholars have, uh, have dubbed moralistic therapeutic deism. It's the idea that just be a good moral person. The, the therapeutic is like God's there to help you make, make you feel better, and it's like therapy. And then deism is like, yeah, like a God exists somewhere. And there's lots of people in churches that are like, I think that's what it means to be a Christian, isn't it? Be a good moral person. God fixes my problems, and I just have to believe in some God up there, Right? So nominal belief presents itself as a belief that it, it doesn't have to affect my life in any way, right? Like, look at the, the, these authorities. Well, I don't want to actually confess that Jesus is who he says he is because then I'll get kicked out of the synagogue. I don't want that. I care more about what people think of me than, than following Jesus. And even today, nominal belief is kind of like, well, I want to continue to live in sin. I want to do the things that I want to do. And I don't want my supposed belief in Jesus to disrupt my, my life too much. And I did, you know, youth and young adult ministry for years, and I would hear this kind of language all the time. I, I mean, I still hear it today from adults, but especially, right, I would do young adult ministry, and it was like, yeah, I love Jesus, but man, I just still want to get drunk every weekend. And so I would see young adults post pictures, and they're in the clubs, and they're wasted on Saturday, and then they come on Sunday, and they're like, well, I'm here, aren't I? I'm a Christian. I just don't want Jesus to to change my life too much. I still want to move in with my boyfriend and girlfriend and sleep together. I I don't want to give my money away and be generous. I don't really want to read my Bible and pray and do spiritual disciplines. But sure, sign me up. I'm a Christian. 
So you can respond to Jesus like that. But really, nominal belief is still unbelief. Now, lastly, right, look at, you have the crowds, the vast majority of them respond in unbelief. Some respond in in belief, really in name only. But lastly, you can respond to Jesus in true belief and surrender. And here's what's fascinating. You don't see that kind of belief in our passage. But you've seen it, you've seen glimpses of it all along with Jesus' 12 disciples, haven't we? However imperfectly, right? Remember when Jesus uh, was teaching and all the crowds left and he he turned to his disciples and he said, are you going to leave too? And what did they respond with? They said, where else would we go, Jesus? You have the words of life. And then specifically when Jesus is crucified and he's raised from the dead and he meets with his disciples and then you start into the book of Acts, you see a group of individuals who truly believe that Jesus is who he says he is. Actually, we're told how many. Acts 1.15, after Jesus has ascended into heaven, it says, in those days Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 people. Isn't that amazing? Jesus teaches and does ministry to thousands of people. And who's left at the end who believe that he is the Son of God? 120 people. But these were true believers. And what did they do? They went and they turned the world upside down because they went, Jesus is the Son of God. He died and he was raised from the dead and he gives salvation. And like almost all of them were killed for believing that and they willingly were, di- were killed. Like church history tells us that Peter, right? Peter who was scared and he ran away and he denies Jesus. That Peter was martyred and they wanted to crucify him. And church history tells us that he said, no, I'm not even, I'm not even worthy to be killed like Jesus. Crucify me upside down. And you go, that's Peter? The guy that was like, I don't know Jesus, right? He was a true believer. And they surrendered everything to Jesus. So the question for all of us, right, as we've been studying John, and and we're not done, we're like halfway, (laughs) but the question for us is, how are you going to respond Some of you who are are here, you might not be believers, and it's amazing that you're here, and I think it's because God is drawing you, but you can respond in unbelief. You can. You can go, you know what? This is hogwash. I don't believe any of this, but I would just urge you, don't, don't harden your heart, because you might get to a place where God goes, fine, I'm just going to give you what you want. Right, today, if you hear God's voice, don't harden your heart. Now, some of you might be nominal believers where you're kind of like, yeah, I, I go to church, I pray before my dinner, and that's kind of it. I would just urge you, don't fool yourself. That's not what it means to be a Christian. And then some of you are here, like many of you are here, and you are true believers because I'm in your lives, and I know you, and I know what you do, and you are following Jesus, and I would just urge you, continue on that path. This is why John wrote this book. Remember John 20? It says, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, 
and that by believing you may have life in his name. That's why we're studying John, that you would believe that Jesus is who he says he is, and what's the result? When you believe, then you have life in his name. So turn to Jesus, believe in him, and you will find life. So, Father, I just thank you um, for really this, this summary of the ministry of Jesus Um, Jesus, I thank you for what you came to do, that you came to glorify the Father, that you came to judge the world, that you came to cast out Satan, that you came to offer salvation to mankind, that you came to reveal God the Father to us. Thank you that you did all of those things perfectly. And then really, God, we're left to, to respond to those things. And it's... It, I, in one sense, it's heartbreaking to see the crowds, the vast majority of people respond in unbelief. But as we read Scripture, God, this is how people have responded to you from the beginning, by constantly rejecting you. And God, it blows me away. You are so patient. Like, you should have just wiped us all out centuries ago. But you are so patient with our evil because you love humanity. And so, God, I, I, I know in this room there might be people that are, 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 are not believers. I pray, God, that you would just soften their hearts and that they would respond, that they wouldn't continue to harden their hearts, that, God, you would open their eyes to see that, Jesus, you are the Son of God. You are who you say you are, and that by believing in you, they can have life in your name. And for those in this room who, may, who maybe are nominal Christians, Christians in name only, God, really, that's, that's still just unbelief. And so would you convict those who are, are, are like that and that we would realize just the, the danger of that and that we would fully surrender to you, Jesus, that we wouldn't be like the authorities who, sure, I believe in you, but I'm not going to put any skin in the game. I'm not going to publicly confess it. I don't want it to change my life at all. And then lastly, God, for those who, who truly believe, would you just strengthen us that our faith in you would continue to grow and deepen, that like John writes near the end of his book, that as we study your word, these things are so that we will believe. And so I'll strengthen that belief. And thank you, Jesus, that, Jesus, that there is life in your name. So just do your work in us, God. And thank you that you are so patient with us. And so I just pray all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen.